Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Stephanie Sawyer Philippa Ballantyne George Clinsos Lorian Wheeler Nathan Lowell Michael LaMangela with original music by Danny Shade. This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, episode 11. Hi, this is Kimmy from TaleChasing.com, and you're listening to Antithesis, book one, and this is the story so far. Years ago, for reasons nobody has ever understood, Douglas Reeves turned down a Supreme Court appointment to become a judge on Luna. Since then, he's been in intermittent contact with Bill Shelley, his one-time friend, and the senator who sponsored his nomination. Through Shelley, he's gotten advanced warning of the political fallout from the attacks on American targets in the colonies. Reeves, however, has his own agenda, which he's kept hidden from everyone, even his partner Jade. Jade has her secrets, too. She's the sister of Cassie Orenthal, a leader of the revolutionary movement who's arranged Jade's relationship in order to keep an eye on Doug. Meanwhile, Brittany Hydra is the diva dancer at the Luna City Ballet, where she plays the lead in Hamlet for a woman known to the world as the Green Lady, the chieftain of the largest crime syndicate on Luna, a woman that we know as Cassie Orenthal. God damn it! Cassie smashed her fist down on the glass. What's wrong, honey? Soft and slick, like an ambitious eel, the voice belatedly registered with her. Brittany. Brittany was there, on the other side of the desk, sitting in her floating litter. Direct terms like suspenser chair didn't do justice to the air of command she carried with her as she slid noiselessly through the air, dressed only in the glitter, sequins, and makeup that she wore on stage. Cassie sighed. She needed to finish her work, be done with it, and be gone for the week. But Brittany's body called to her like water in a desert. Cassie steeled herself. Just another twenty minutes, then she'd be done. Nothing, nothing. I just need to work on it. I don't think so. Her voice again. Music. Cassie closed her eyes against it. Just a little more time. Then she could give in. She wished she could close her ears as well, ignore the dancer siren song, and power through the rest of her work. Brittany floated around the edge of the desk and reached out for her, and touched Cassie's cheek with her fingertips. You're cold. Have you eaten? Brittany, please. Cassie kept her eyes firmly on her work, but the touch made her throb, as if her skin were hungry. Please. Her chest was trying to cave in, and a sob was rising in her throat. Give me a few minutes. It was barely a whisper. Brittany arose, the suspensers pushing her higher, until she hovered behind Cassie and put her hands on her shoulders. Knotted from hips to neck with worry, Cassie's muscles screamed in her head under Brittany's touch. But she couldn't have this. Not now. Not yet. Uh. Not when she knew what Brittany's dance routine did to her hands. Uh. Cassie moaned in protest and reached her hand up and caught Brittany. She wanted this woman, right now, more than anything else in the world, and the desire scraped at her mind like a cheese grater. She couldn't bear it, not with the hunger and the rest, and the touch made it worse. 
and she couldn't let Brittany hurt her hands more. No. Brittany didn't listen. She lifted Cassie's headdress off and dropped it on the ground behind them. Then Cassie felt fingers running through her hair and sighed softly. Soft, warm, and gentle in her ear. What do you want for dinner? Dinner? Anything. Brittany reached around Cassie's neck and down onto the desk where she Mm. tapped at the interface. Cassie kept her eyes shut, (sighs) aching to let go and lose herself. Her skin throbbed with neglect, the ache suddenly turning sharp anywhere Britt touched her. She missed being in space, where she didn't have to look over her shoulder, where she was three steps removed from everything, where she could be on her own without needing anyone. She'd seen Brittany only last week, but there wasn't much in the universe that she needed, like she needed this lame dancer. Work could wait. She pushed Jade and Doug and the security problems and how she was going to kill Xylar and the revolution and Joss Kyle out of her thoughts. And she ducked to the side and kissed Brittany's jawline. I'm sorry. She whispered into her skin. Brittany took Cassie's face in her hands and kissed her gently, then lifted until Cassie stood before her. Gods, don't ever let her go. Cassie reached up and grabbed Brittany's hands, took them and lifted them from her skin, and kissed them. She couldn't stop. She kissed them until she was half-devouring them, the beautiful, strong, gnarled hands that turned this creature from another world into the movement that her soul needed to remember beauty. The arms that looked like a workman's, the muscles and veins taut below the skin, the sinews rippling under the surface whenever the fingers moved. She managed to wean herself from Brittany's touch for the moment, and stepped backwards, leading her lady into the head where an old clawfoot stood secreted behind a shower wall. The distance was a relief, if only for the space of a few breaths. Normally she'd have doffed her coat and thrown it over a hook, and let the staff deal with having it cleaned and put back in its place. This time, she hung it meticulously on the hanger in the wardrobe alcove. She let Brittany undo the laces of her corset and thrilled as she felt the ends of the dancer's fingers brush up against her ribs as she unhooked it and peeled it off. She bent and undid the laces of her boots while Brittany lovingly pulled first one, then the other strap of the leotard over her shoulders and down her body so that the body stocking came off with the shoes. Finally, dressed alike and on equal ground, Cassie stood with her back to her lover, took a moment to center herself, and then turned to face her. She reached out for Brittany and lifted her out of the chair. She held her like a child cradled in her arms, trailing her lips over the dancer's body from ears to belly. Brittany held on, her lips never leaving Cassie's ear, whispering soft words over and over, each one a meteorite through a habitation dome. Oh, baby, I've missed you. Hush, come here. You're so beautiful. Brittany's voice brought words that Cassie never allowed herself. She hated herself for how the words ruined her, but she held Brittany close and sucked on her breasts and didn't let go, soaking in the glorious words. Take me to the bath, love. I hurt. Rub me down. Brittany's breath was hot in her ear, soft, burning. Cassie nodded and carried Brittany back through the hidden door and set her down in the tub. She dialed the temperature into the control unit, and then settled in herself. They sat face to face, 
and Cassie took Brittany's legs and straightened them as much as possible. Mm. She ran her fingers in thin, smooth strokes over the atrophied muscles, rubbing circles into the knotted, arthritic joints. Oh, Cass, don't ever stop. Cassie beamed. This was how it should be. Brittany's skin felt like life when they touched. Rubbing her muscles was the least she could do in return for what Brittany did for her. She relished every inch, every goose bump, every fold of flesh and gnarl of bone. Her eyes closed in worship. It took a half an hour just to hit the major pain centers, but she didn't mind. She wanted Brittany's skin. She needed it. It was the need she hated. She hated the vulnerability it opened up in her. It made her weak, but she couldn't help herself. She felt Brittany's fingers on her face and leaned into them. She felt thin, severe lips on her own and latched onto the lower one, sucking in Brittany's breath like it was the only oxygen vent in a hothouse. The doorbell. Someone was at the door. Ignore it and it'll go away. Cassie broke the kiss and reached for the comm panel on the wall to her left. What is it? I have a delivery here from the Casablanca Bistro for Miss Hydra, ma'am. The guard's voice polluted her sacred space. Bring it in. Leave it on my desk. Yes, ma'am. She released the talk button and looked over at Brittany, arching an eyebrow. Casablanca Bistro. New groundhog joint on level 25. Lamb kebabs, saffron rice, hibiscus blossoms... Carrots and dates sautéed with garlic in a hot pepper sauce. The hunger rushed back. Her stomach felt like it had been punched, but her mouth watered uncontrollably. She splashed Brittany in the face, then did it again for good measure. <laughs> you don't fight fair. <laughs> fair wouldn't have got me in here now, would it? Her smile was song. Cassie slipped out of the water, delivering a final playful splash to emphasize her point, and retrieved the tray from her office. Moving the eight meters back and putting the polymer box on her fold-out table next to the tub was almost more than she could bear, as the ambrosia odor jumped straight up her nostrils and wrapped its fingers around her brain. By the time she slid back into the tub and took her first bite, she was swooning. And once the first bite was in, she couldn't restrain herself. She and Brittany ate in silence, the only communication between them the caresses of toes on calves and thighs beneath the water. After the first few bites quieted the sharp pangs, Cassie punched up the electric blues station on the music surface. The sound of mortal thoughts pushed through fingers and strings and circuits passed between them like understanding. It didn't fit the food, but it didn't matter. It was the sound of touch. Brittany fed her the dessert of raisins with her teeth, the two textures of velvet fruit and figgish flesh blending together in Cassie's mouth. For a few minutes, on a few shining days, every few months, it made up for all the nights sleeping unprotected under the great machines on Darkside. It made being on Luna bearable. Cassie ran her fingertips up and down Brittany's legs, as if touching them made her whole again. It was the only way she did feel whole, the only person she'd ever known who was like she was. The difference between them was that Brittany carried her deformity <laughs> where it could be seen. <laughs> oh. 
The circulating pump kept the water warm as Brittany uh. rocked her open palm back and forth against Cassie's mons, and Cassie oh. couldn't tell motion from music, water from movement, uh. need from joy. Mm. She was shaking long before her orgasm built. She did every time they touched. Not from longing, not with anticipation, but with hope. Hope that it would be the last time, and terror that it would never happen again. Her cries were the only way she could understand it all at once. Cassie buried her face in the crook of Brittany's neck and caught her breath, weeping silently into the tiny dancer's waterlogged skin. Her own skin was wrinkled like an overstuffed cabbage by the time she shooed Brittany out the door to prep for the show. Cassie dialed the air conditioning down rather than slip into her clothes. The afternoon's distraction, unplanned and unlooked for, had left her naked and vulnerable and feeling unthreatened. No. Not a distraction. Anything else. Not that. Her back was sore from too many hours making love in the tub, but her mind was clear. For a few hours, she didn't have to worry about the fact she was on Luna. She could get through the rest of the work and still make the show. There really was only one thing left to do for the day anyway. Buried deep in her file system, underneath two layers of encryption, in a hidden directory, she opened the email box. Three years ago, an email showed up in her private box, offering her a job smuggling a data crystal off Sidon for delivery to parties unknown on Luna. The circumstances intrigued her enough to take it. It was during delivery that things turned interesting. The temple stood free under the dome. Technically, she supposed it would be a cathedral. Somehow, the Church of Rome had managed to garner valuable agricultural space for their construction of this, their only off-world cathedral. They'd built it in the neo-Gothic style, grander than what she'd heard they'd built on Earth 600 years ago, just to make the point that their god's gaze reached into human lives, even here. She walked in and followed her instructions scrupulously. She was to buy a candle with hard currency, and light two instead of one. She did so, unable to comprehend the mind that would find meaning in burning a string in front of a plastic effigy of a dead Terran hair shirt. Then she was to go and ape devotion while waiting in line at the confessional. The bizarre pagan blood ritual which she took part in to secure her cover helped distract her. She'd known enough death in her time to recognize sublimated terror when she saw it. In the confessional, she was to slip the data crystal into a hole in the cushion and await further instructions. She couldn't see the man on the other side of the screen, but she was shocked that there were no cameras in the tiny room. When she shoved the crystal in past the fabric, she felt it drop away down a chute. Her anonymity seemed complete. These people knew their craft. Do you want to know what's on it? The voice from behind the screen was scratched and worn, as if from too many roaches smoked too hot until the throat was burned out. She knew better than to answer him. No native curiosity at all. The rasp came again. Hearing it made her throat hurt. There are only a few people who would have the incentive and the know-how to run this kind of sneak. 
Any one of them would as easily kill me as have me know who they are. So no, I don't want to know. But we know who you are, Cassiopeia. She felt a chill grip her bowels like an iron claw at the use of her childhood name. We hired you for a reason. Of course you did. Of course they knew who she was. Of course they'd checked her out before offering the job. But this conversation shouldn't be happening. And, she belatedly realized, she was in a cage. At least some of the penitents in the pews would be working with the ragged voice behind the confessional wall. We hired you, it went on, because you want what we do. The only thing I want is to walk out of this booth and out of this temple and forget everything that happened. No, you want to be free. (laughs) Free? She was already free. She'd spent her life making sure no one would cage her or control her again. You need to read your dossier more closely. I'm as free as anyone gets on this rock. You still have to dodge the Terrans. That's the cost of doing business. We can get rid of them. So that was the hook. She would have laughed it off as insane had she not already seen the deliberation and attention to detail they used. The fee they were paying her was as astronomical as the planning was flawless. At the end of the meeting, they told her to reach inside her seat, where she found a piece of flash paper with an email address and an encryption key. She memorized it and burned it. When she logged in, she found her first set of instructions. In the three years since, she'd never learned who was behind the other addresses on the CC list. When spies used to leave information in cubby holes in public parks and perturb a nearby stone, they called it a dead drop. The only people she was corresponding with whom she knew were the ones she had recruited directly, and only four of them knew who she was. In the intervening years, she'd tried, unsuccessfully, to find out who she reported to, but the brains of the outfit covered their tracks too well. Still, the consistency of their operations and their focus gave her as much reassurance as she needed that they really were working towards independence. As much reassurance as she needed for now, anyway. She paged quickly through the dozen messages, a couple of surveillance reports from Sidon, eight dead drops from informants lower down the ladder, six of them worth passing on up the chain, and a note from Joss. She opened it. He was the best she'd worked with. He only sent messages when it was something truly valuable. She didn't have to worry about sorting his information into the useful and the useless, and she fully expected that the higher-ups would take him out of her hands in the next few months. It was they, whoever they were, who had assigned her to watch for him on Sidon a year ago. Besides, she didn't have to worry about personal messages from him, and that fact alone made him easier to work with than she at first had feared. She didn't need the borders of one life spilling over into the territory of another. Received bounty item 36753. Code set appears authentic. Currently doing third stage verification and installing sniffers. Provenance of information unclear. Information came via Luna dock worker Scott Walters. Please advise on contingencies. She pulled up the bounty list. 36753, Persian Space Control or Persian Military Command Access Protocols. Scott Walters. No way should a dock worker in her organization have access to information like that. There was no way it was even possible unless he'd been a mole. Xyla's arrogance would cost him more than his position. Cassie began a new message. 
Loxley at Sherwood.locks. Pursuant to Report 25643, Missing Dock Worker reported in Nineveh selling bountied information item 36753. Provenance unclear, possible infiltration, investigation commencing. Request further instruction. She hit send. Fifteen minutes later, she was once again in full regalia. One public appearance at a performance per layover was the rule she had for herself, and after tonight, she wouldn't have time. Back through the foyer, past the box office with the ticket queue that was now longer than Godiva's hairpiece, up the stairs on the opposite side of the balcony, one foot in front of the other, making good time while maintaining decorum under the ridiculous costume. She could handle it, she told herself. This was one last long, longing look at the dancer on the stage before she left the world of make-believe and descended once again into the hell that was her domain. Her seat, little short of a throne in the front row of the balcony, received her just as the house lights snuffed out and the single spot came up on the stage. There, beginning in a lotus ringed by a supporting cast, Brittany Hydra opened her arms above her head. The glitter painted in streams around the lines of her body made the light slide off her flesh, all but her powdered bright face. The orchestra soared and the extraterrestrial hamlet began her sedition. How like a god. No, 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 this won't do. Doug grumbled to himself and pushed the suspend button on his PPD. No matter how long he stayed on Luna, it would never be right. It was stupid. It was childish. He knew it was. Ambient electricity meant the batteries were unnecessary in the domes. The PPDs went everywhere. He got more work done here than he ever could back dirtside. But when it was time to settle out of his day job and into his secret life, he needed the tactile interface. And he couldn't get it. He swung his legs off the sofa and bounced to a standing position, a maneuver he never could have pulled off under Terran gravity, and padded his way into the kitchen. The green suit of silk trousers that hung from the drawstring at his hips swished loosely as his bare feet lightly tripped over the throw rugs until they found the polished bare granite of the kitchen. It would always be granite as far as he was concerned, and to hell with the fact that it didn't form the same way as real granite did. He poured himself a glass of orange juice. He cast a suspicious glance back at the PPD lying abandoned at the head of the sofa, and grabbed the bottle of vodka from the shelf above the sink. Damn gadgets. The orange juice looked a little less lonely with the company. Still, the screwdriver wasn't exactly the tool he needed. Jade? She was in the wing back, facing out the living room viewport. He circled wide around her, giving her plenty of time to notice his reflection. She was always jumpy when people crept up behind her, no matter how pleased she was once her heart started beating again. He hated bothering her. Hated it even more when he saw her reclining loosely in the chair. A pair of spectacles that she used when she was doing fine detail work perched delicately on her nose, and her hair fell like a tumble-dried sheet about her bare shoulders, stray wisps streaming down over her arms like a thread curtain. Her breasts cradled in her arms swelled under her loose nipples, all her attention absorbed in the sketch pad perched on her knees. Short of making a trek down fifteen levels to the Arts Bazaar near the spaceport, she was the only one who could give him what he needed. That thing his fingers craved, that his mind wouldn't loosen up without, not when he needed to diagram and untangle puzzles and make his plans within plans. It was the one thing he regularly missed about America, besides the weather. 
In this automated, well-designed world, he missed pencils. Jade had a cigar box full. Jade? He raised his voice to jolt her out of the cloud she wrapped around herself. Jade! What? She startled upright, looking around for a moment like a cornered rabbit, then saw him and relaxed again, the comfortable smile returning to her face. What you need, lover? Her mouth curled around the last word like an invitation, and Doug shivered pleasantly. I need your help. What's wrong? He kept his face straight and his tone even. There's a case. Some damn kid shoplifting in the bazaar. Earth kid, poor as dirt, got left up here by his parents. No fair home. Oh, no. Her eyes widened. Well, he took to stealing knickknacks from the bazaar, but he couldn't make a living on them. So he started stealing paper and pencils and doing caricatures of tourists for sale. That poor thing. She took off her glasses and gave him her full attention. He's gonna get convicted. And I'm gonna have to send him up. That's terrible. And all because he couldn't get a hold of pencils and paper without stealing them. Jade's eyes narrowed and Doug smirked back at her. You are such a bastard! She grabbed a throw pillow from behind her shoulders and fired it at him. Doug jumped high, letting the missile aimed at his stomach sail comfortably underneath him. He landed heavily and spilled a bit of his drink on the floor. With one long stride, he leapt the four meters to her side. Next to her chair, he fell to his knees. Please, ma'am, may I have a pencil? He looked up at her with his best impression of an imploring ten-year-old. Save another innocent from the hell of prison for want of a pencil. She screwed her face up into the best how-did-they-ever-let-you-off-planet look and then tapped his head with the chewed end of her number two. You? She tapped once for each word. Don't deserve a pencil. She put it back between her teeth and regarded him like a schoolmarm. Torturing me with a story of a street urgent artist. Honestly. Doug wondered if he'd gone too far. She was guarded about her past. He knew she'd spent her early years orphaned in the less reputable parts of the city. But her eyes were smiling behind her stern expression. What will you do to earn one? Well, that depends on how soon you want to have to wash your PJ pants. Hmm. Well, there's no doubt about it. You're a boy. She tapped lightly on his head again for a moment. I suppose if you share that screwdriver... Hey, if you give me a pencil and paper, I won't need one. Well, then... She reached down past his face and took his drink from him. In return, she handed him a couple sheets of paper and the pencil dangling from her lips, then took a deep drink from the glass. It leaked. Ah, shit. She looked down at her chest, then over at Doug. He supposed she was attempting to be alluring, but he was still making his puppy dog eyes at her, so the minute that she met his gaze, her pretense crumbled into (laughs) giggle fits. Don't worry, love. I have too much work to do now anyway. He got up off his knees and leaned in for a kiss, then dodged her mouth and dove for her chest, running his tongue down the valley between her breasts, cleaning up the trailing droplets of alcoholic orange juice. He traced an S-curves back up and over her left breast, cleaning it a little more thoroughly than was strictly necessary, until her nipple tightened into a hard nub. There you are. Pencil for an eraser. Even trade. He kissed her before she could find another pillow to smack him with, then held the pencil up before her face. Thanks. It helps. Helps you, maybe. Now I've got to go find my place again. She nibbled at his cheek and nodded at him, her polite signal for... Get lost and let me draw. 
He stood up, rolling his prizes up in his left fist, and did his best to ignore her when she playfully smacked his ass. Now. Doug nabbed a book off the shelf as he passed, and sat down folding his left leg under himself. Situated, he punched the power button on his PPD, and it obligingly brought up the screen where he'd left off. It wanted his password. He closed his eyes and input the number pattern from habit. He couldn't dictate the password had he been asked, but his fingers knew the right dance. The email box opened. There was a note from John Little. Unusual. She didn't report in often. He had recruited her because he knew she could run things independently if he was ever found out. Pursuant to report 25643, missing dock worker reported in Nineveh selling bounty information item 36753. Provenance unclear, possible infiltration, investigation commencing. Request further instruction. Doug made a note of the important details and opened the book to the appropriate entry. It was a poetry anthology he'd put together. Each poem was indexed by page number, then by stanza, then by line number. There was a lot of variety of cultures, eras, and interpretations, which suited the purpose well. It looked innocuous sitting on the shelf sandwiched between his Bible and his Chaucer, and it meant he had to explain less to Jade if she came across his papers lying out. When one of his operatives offered a bounty, he assigned it a catalog number from this book. She knew, more or less, that he was an advocate for independence. She didn't know about the information network he maintained to further that aim. He didn't like it much. The house he'd grown up in had been open in every possible way, and he had a reflexive nausea at the notion of keeping secrets from a lover. But when the revolution came, it would be safer for her not to know. (laughs) The poem was Persian, The Shah Nameh by Ferdusi, the ancient tale of the formation of the first Persian Empire. So it was a bounty on Persian information. The third line of the stanza and following gave him the description of the item, or one near enough to jar his memory. Seal up a dragon's teeth in death, could from a flintstone conjure dew, the moon and seven stars she knew, and of all things invisible to human sight, this crone could tell. A piece of information to conjure up the hidden and unseen. That would be the Persian military complex access codes. Excellent. He reviewed the email again. Provenance unclear, possible infiltration. From a dock worker. Doug jotted a few rough notes down. There had been an investigation last year, but the CID claimed not to find anything and let the matter drop. Someone was on the inside. If the dock worker was part of the network, it could be the break he was looking for. He sketched the tree from memory, a schematic of the organizational structure of his network buried in the Dock Workers' Union. He didn't keep names at the ready. Those were hidden where only he could find him, and he deliberately hadn't memorized them. The only way a blue-collar grunt got access to the Persian mainframe was if he, or someone close to him, was playing both sides. And if that was the case, the investigation last year would have turned it up, if it hadn't been dropped. Where had the pressure come from? The whole thing stank of a setup. Mm. Something familiar tugged at the back of his mind, but whatever it was, wouldn't step out. Doug studied the chart again, committing the shape to short-term memory, and jotted a couple notes to himself in a corner. He tore the corner off and set it on his PPD, then got up and went to the sink. He took a lighter from the cupboard and lit the paper, letting the flames consume it and washing the ashes down the drain. The terminal on the wall was flashing. A message had just been dropped into his box. He peered around the corner to check on Jade. 
She was still sitting contentedly scribbling in her chair, looking out through the port at the mare below. He ducked back to his terminal and slipped the earpiece on, pressing the microphone to his temporal bone. Retrieve. Bill Shelley's letterhead appeared on the screen above a short note. Several agents have turned up missing since the attacks. All have done deep cover work in Persian Empire. Possible compromise. All official announcements will be made regarding Marion later today. I'll try to buy you as much time as I can. So it begins. There were moles in his network, and now there was a deadline. He grabbed the PPD and dashed off a message to John Little, instructing her to use the press conference as a test for their new pet analyst. Perhaps he'd spot something useful. Unless he was a mole. Damn. Doug had been sure that Briggs would be a good recruit, but he could be a plant after all. His politics had been expedient and nebulous when he was on Earth. Perhaps Doug had missed his guess. And he certainly had enough pull with the old contacts to subvert things from the inside. Now... He stood and paced back and forth in front of his sofa. He needed a way to check up on Briggs. After that, he would need good people at his disposal. He'd need them to expedite his investigations. Someone he could trust. Someone who he could depend on to follow the trails wherever they led. And he needed them soon. He only knew of one place to find people like that. He toggled his earpiece on. Computer directory. Find Alyssa and Jim Hartman. You've been listening to episode 11 of Antithesis, book 1, Predestination, and Other Games of Chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. Other music by Ludwig von Beethoven. This episode starred Stephanie Sawyer as Cassie Orenthal, Philippa Ballantyne as Brittany Hydra, George Clensos as Douglas Reeves, Lorian Wheeler as Jade Oren, Nathan Lowell as Senator Bill Shelley, and Michael Lamangelo as The Guard. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008 Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2008 Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the author. So, no promos and not much commentary this week. I had a death in the family, or in a very close friend's family, and that plus getting an ear infection so that I couldn't mix delayed this episode. You will be getting a second episode this week, probably Friday or Saturday, as it depends on another new piece of music from the redoubtable Danny Shade. If you're listening, Danny, you're fucking awesome, and I can't wait to hear the next piece. We are on iTunes now, so please go there and write a review. The more people who write reviews, the higher we climb on the charts, and the more people can find the story. Some of you have already found this, some of you haven't. The Antithesis cover art is out. You can see it at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. It will soon also be embedded in these mp3 files. If you liked Philippa Ballantyne in this episode, you should check out her other work. From the fantasy novel Chasing the Bard to her new series Erotica a la Carte, she has the perfect voice for both historical fantasy and erotica, and her writing is even better than her voice. 
You can find out more about her at www.pjballantine.com. As for me, I'm going to be at SteamCon in San Jose, California on Halloween weekend. I'll be sitting on a few panels and wearing a snazzy outfit, so if you're there, look me up. You can get a feel for what I look like on the author page at jdsawyer.net, or you can just look in the SteamCon program. I hope I'll see some of you there. Should be a fabulous time. In preparation, I'm digging deep into steampunk films and blogging about the experience. You can read those articles at www.jdsawyer.net. Also, check out my cover story this month in Linux Journal, where I interview the granddaddy of internet self-promotion, Cory Doctorow. Remember also that you can follow me on Twitter. My name there is D. Sawyer. Thank you, all of you, for the marvelous feedback. The feedback episode is coming next week. It's not too late to email me at dan at jdsawyer.net or leave feedback on the blog or on the antithesis line at 206-350-2340. Questions, attaboys, criticisms, and death threats are all welcome. The death threats have tapered off lately. It makes me wonder if I'm falling down on the job. Anyway, um, until next week, I leave you with the nagging questions. How will Cassie deal with the security leak in her organization? And what effect will Brittany have on her stability now that she's going to be on Luna for a while? Does Jade know about Doug? If she does, why is she hiding Doug's true intentions from Cassie? And how does Doug know the Hartmans? What does he intend to do once he finds them? Find out this weekend, and remember... It isn't whether you win or lose, it's how you rig the game.